0: Welcome back to Hill Country Institute Live, Exploring Christ and Culture. I'm Larry Linen-Schmidt, your host, and we're delighted you were with us today. We serve the body of Christ by encouraging and equipping followers of Jesus Christ to live fully and share His winsomeness, beauty, and reason. We invite you to visit our website, hillcountryinstitute.org, to listen to past programs, which are also available as podcasts as Hill Country Institute Live. Audio and video from past conferences on faith and culture issues, such as faith and science, work and art, are available there as well, along with presentations on the works of C.S. Lewis and the Inklings. Speakers include Walter Bradley, William Lane Craig, Alistair McGrath, Andy Crouch, Jonathan Dotson, and many others. We also ask you to consider a donation to support this program. You can donate through our website, hillcountryinstitute.org, or by calling 512 680 7993. That's 512-680-7993. If you'd like to sponsor this program, please contact us. The radio stations are our friends, but they like to be paid for the airtime. And now let's welcome our special guest today, Jay Richards. Jay, welcome. So glad you're here with us. Thanks, Larry. We've been talking about virtues. We, We talked about how the creativity that God's given us was to be his his image bearer to take care of what he created and to add to it and make more of that and then you bring in the idea so well in the book that there are virtues that that we bring into business and and into our careers and job creation and and company creation and uh we we've talked about a couple altruism being one but keep growing well, is is one of your virtues uh Yes. What, and what do you, how do you, you know, I have some idea what that might mean, but how do you, what do you think of yeah. when you think of keep growing?
1: Well, I, I mentioned already, we talked about the virtue of courage, which is just the willingness to act in the context of failure. But anybody, you know, thinks about this is going to know that failure alone is not the key to success. I mean, you can <laughs> just keep failing and failing and failing. And so the sort of second virtue I talk about is what I really call uh anti fragility, which you can think of that as a, a growing process. So what anti fragility is is' kind of like adaptability or resilience, but you know adaptability just means that you can adapt and survive in different contexts. Anti fragility is the virtue in which you actually improve when you have difficulties. And a really basic example of this would just be uh, what we do at our bodies, what, the, what organisms do. So if you lift weights, for instance, um, you know, when you first start lifting weights, if you're doing it right, you're actually tearing muscle fibers, you're creating an inflammatory response in your muscles. But if you do it right, and then you take a break and take rest and eat properly, you will actually build more muscle, more more and larger and stronger muscles than you had before. It's not just that your body will repair itself, it will come back stronger than it was before. That's the virtue of fragility. It's so important because, on one hand, you need to be willing to be courageous and to act in the context of failure, but you also need to be able to take failure and learn something from it so that it improves you. And a lot of this is really mindset. If you try something, you try a job, or you start out on a degree that doesn't work out, you can say, well, that's a terrible waste of time, or you can take okay, what did I learn and what did that give me that I wouldn't have had otherwise? that I can use going forward. That's anti-fragility, and anti-fragility, by the way, it's a term from a writer named Nicholas Nassim Taleb, and the book is called Antifragile, where he develops this idea, and he says, we tend to think of the opposite of fragility. That is, fragility is just something that's easily broken, and you perturb it and it breaks, you sing a loud pitch and the crystal glass breaks. but the opposite of fragility might just be something like being rigid or robust. But that just means it, it, it doesn't break easily and it's strong. That's different. There's really this third thing, anti-fragility, which is not the same as being rigid. It's being flexible and having the capacity to improve, to grow, to get better as the result of, of damage and, and, and perturbation. And that's, that's just as important whether you're working out and training for a triathlon or you want to succeed ultimately in a business enterprise, which has surprises and, and problems that you can't anticipate ahead of time.
0: Sure. Well, and, you, and it, you know, I love your examples. Again, fitnessblender.com, something you personally used, came out of a, of a yes. failed situation, didn't it?
1: It did. That was a, a married couple named Daniel and Kelly Seegers. In fact, I started the book with them. They had lived up in the Seattle area, north of Seattle, and in 2008 they got married and Saved their life savings and bought a house in August of 2008, which was at the very sort of moment of the explosion of financial crisis <laughs> that was located in in the mortgage industry. So they closed on their house on a Friday. And on Monday, Kelly basically had all of her hours slashed, and Daniel, who was a, a, a personal fitness trainer, lost almost all of his clients. And so they thought, well, "What are we going to do?" They had his house, they had a garage, and they had a hundred dollars worth of video equipment so they painted the back one wall garage white started making little videos now this is 2008 so this is early on youtube wasn't what it was what it is now and just posting little workout videos on youtube on youtube it slowly but surely kind of built up a subscriber base the videos got better and better they now have i think at last count something like five million Subscribers. In fact, the, the, a mil, they kept adding mil, a million subscribers while I was writing the book. But these were people. They don't have degrees in, in computer science or in video production or anything, but using the technology that was available to them and a network technology that allows them to train people now uh, everywhere. If you read the comment section at Fitness Blender, you'll see women from Saudi Arabia doing their online exercises Um, you know, in their homes in Saudi Arabia. I discovered them because I need workouts when I'm on the road traveling, and very often I just have to work out in my hotel room. And they do these great videos and show you exactly what to do without any equipment in your hotel room. And so it's just, you know, it's one story, but I like it because um, it it depends on high technology. It depends on the Internet. It depends on easy video production tools. It depends on YouTube. But it's also them really – Harnessing these really basic skills, which is their knowledge, as it happens, of the fitness industry and being able to train people. But now, rather than training individual clients, uh, they can train hundreds of thousands of people at once.
0: Well, when you when you mention the the connectivity that they have uh, that's available to them, it leads directly into another value of yours, collaboration. Mm-hmm. And uh, why do you why do you consider collaboration a virtue?
1: Well, it's a virtue because collaboration is essentially a form of humility. So, what collaboration is, is the willingness and the ability to both learn from others and to work with others. That's always a, you know, in many types of work, that's going to be, you know, if you're a team player, that's going to be a virtue. Um, but if you think you're the smartest person in the room and you don't think you have anything to learn from anyone else, you're never going to be a good collaborator. But collaboration is a Especially important as a virtue now, because of the hyperconnectivity of our economy. I mean, if you think about it, until about 150 years ago, the fastest way for one person to communicate with another over a distance was as fast as a single horse could run with the Pony Express. But then, then we got telegraphs and telephones, and now we've reached the stage in which something like a third or a half of the human race is connected to each other at roughly the speed of light is a remarkable event that's happened here at the beginning of the 21st century. And it allows us to collaborate and to work with other people all around the world. I mean, we're doing a podcast and we're, you know, 1500 miles apart. I run an an online news and commentary site called The Stream uh, in which we have staff all over the country. And I do it for my my pajamas from my house in Washington, Mm D.C. All of these, these are new ways of collaborating. And so, people that learn to be able to work with others and to be able to learn from others, I would argue, people that do that are going to have a, an edge up in the new economy. So, if you think about, you think about robots is replacing everything? No, actually. Those human skills that allow you to work with people and to magnify and improve the work of other people, that is going to be especially valuable in an economy in which machines do more and more of the things that we were previously doing.
0: Well, again, collaboration takes takes a lot of different forms now. Uber, Lyft, uh, Airbnb, yeah. they're they're collaborating with homeowners, car owners, and the public in a way that uh, creates something that, that didn't even exist a few years ago. Uh,
1: no, that's right. I mean, who would have ever—you think about it, the reason um, the taxi industry had to essentially be a municipal monopolies, so and if you show up in a, a town, a strange town, you don't know anyone, you don't want to get in a car with a stranger, and so you need to be able to tell that's a taxi, it's officially authorized, you know, they've got a record of this guy, um, and so I, I feel comfortable getting in this car and not worrying about it being a local axe murderer. Um, Uber and Lyft and these rideshare services, they solve that information problem with a, what's called a digital trust architecture, so that the Uber driver's connected to the network, they're connected to the map, uh, there's a background check on them, the, the, the customer who's getting in their car has their information, and so in many ways, I mean, I, we let our 15-year-old daughter Uh, use uber sometimes in washington dc that's an amazing thing to be able to create a system in which people can get in cars with other strangers uh, and connect them to each other so that a person needing a ride the person giving a ride can actually be able to do that and to do it in a very decentralized way that's not heavily regulated as a monopoly it's a remarkable it's a confluence of factors that gives us a new way to cooperate and collaborate that we could never have done without the technology
0: well, the the creativity that's uh, possible and evident to today is uh, is amazing because you you start connecting things that you wouldn't have thought of before. But when we when we start to think of artificial intelligence, there's a there's yeah. another dimension and another level, and. Uh, it, it comes up a lot in places that I don't really expect it. Uh, in the Wall Street Journal this week, there was a uh, mm-hmm. article on the decreased portion of earnings to middle and lower level workers. But it, then it ends with mm-hmm. the question of what are we going to do with the loss of jobs uh, to robots? And then you've got yeah. Bill Gates and Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking and, and many others saying, you know, we, we should have this concern. Uh, but on the other hand, even Daniel Dennett, you know, one of the four harshmen of the new atheism, he yeah. he he agrees with this this uh, sense that it, if we're asking our computers going to have consciousness, he thinks we're having we're asking the wrong question. And uh, yeah. so, what's the right question? How do we think about uh, artificial intelligence, creativity, loss of jobs, robots? Uh, it's I'll just be quiet. because I mean, the list yeah. just keeps going. <laughs> that's a bunch
1: of well, that's a bunch of questions in there. Yeah. But I think that the sort of short answer is one. Distinguish between soft or, 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 um, soft and strong artificial intelligence or weak and strong artificial intelligence. Strong artificial intelligence is the idea that the robots are going to wake up, the computers are going to become conscious, they're going to take over the world. And there's just absolutely no reason to believe that the machines that we make, they're not anything like us. There's no reason to believe, any more reason to believe that a computer is going to become conscious than that a tractor is going to become conscious or that if you build a strong enough tractor, it will become an ox. I mean, it just doesn't follow on the other hand, we are going to have to deal with the problem of disruption. There are many things we are now doing that will be done and done better by machines. Now, that's the story of, of human history. Uh, all of economic history is about us building machines that do things better. It's just that now they'll be doing things that we thought only humans could do. And, yes, there are types of manual labor jobs that are going to come obsolete. But as I argue in the book, there are other kinds that are not. And so but very often when we're thinking about the loss of jobs, what we're thinking of is repetitive factory jobs in an assembly line environment. Those jobs are almost all going to go away. And the reason is that they're very easily automated. It's important to remember, though, that those jobs only existed in the 20th century. There have only been factories, centralized factories, for maybe 300 years. But the assembly line was actually invented by Henry Ford in the early 20th century. So don't treat the factory as we now conceive of it, as some kind of eternal verity that humans have always had to have. It's a particular type of work that is probably an artifact of the 20th century, and it will be disappearing. But there are other kinds of work, the skilled trades, for instance, in which you have to develop a skill and a know-how as a welder or as a carpenter uh, or as a sculptor. Machines aren't going to be doing that kind of stuff anytime soon. In fact, we don't have robots. That, you know, We don't have rosy Uh, The robot like they have in the Jetsons that can actually do housework because it involves complex bodily movement. And that's a really tough problem to solve. And so what really people should be thinking of is, okay, the types of jobs that are likely to go the way of the dodo bird is both mental and physical jobs that are highly routine and repetitive and it can be reduced uh, to kind of machine learning uh, or to some some kind of routine activity. The types of jobs that are not going to go the way of the bird are both manual and mental jobs that involve, as you said several times, creativity, but also complex bodily know-how and movement. So if you're doing landscaping, um, we're not going to have landscaping robots anytime soon. It's just not something to worry about. On the other hand, if you or full-time as an uber driver you should probably worry about the day in which automated cars take over for you because that's already starting to happen and so even though i think say gig economy and jobs like uber and lyft are great i think they are temporary i do think a lot of the jobs that people do including lots of men uh, doing long-haul trucking i think that's likely to be automated we there will be other jobs that will they'll come and replace those we don't quite know what those are and so my advice for people is to always be adaptable Always be thinking about the new skills and things that you can develop so that if your particular way of working becomes obsolete, you'll be able to pivot to do something at all.
0: Sure. Uh, we you talked about Peter Thiel's comment that we can we can go from one uh to infinity with an idea. But then you wrote that sometimes we, meaning humans, imagine an idea that takes an idea that takes us from zero to one. That's what sets That's us exactly apart. Exactly right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's Peter Thiel's metaphor. His <laughs> book is called Zero to One, and his point is that uh, businesses and entrepreneurs can often sort of tweak ideas that somebody has already developed. That's the one to end. Or it's taking something already just and improving it in some way. But every so often we go from zero, from nothing, to one, to something. And we don't do that as God does it, obviously. God, as Thomas Aquinas said, is the only one that can create In the proper sense, in other words, you can give being to new things that did not exist before. On the other hand, God creates things and then he leaves it to us to transform it in certain ways. So God creates sand, but he didn't create fiber optic cables and computer chips directly. He gave us the capacity to take sand, to take silica, and to transform these material substrates in the technologies that do other things. That's, in a sense, our way of going from zero to one, creating fundamentally new things based upon the physical universe that God has created. And if you believe human beings are created in the image of the creative God, you're going to look for new ways of doing that. You're going to be optimistic about the possibility of doing that in the future, just as we have in the past. If, on the other hand, you just think we're a machine made of meat, that humans are the product of a totally blind evolutionary process that eventually became conscious, then you'll probably think, well, there's no reason we can't design a machine that can do that even better. And so in many ways, this whole debate about man and machine, about artificial intelligence, it comes down to kind of a metaphysical or a theological question about how do you understand the human person? Are we these free agents, unique hybrids of the spiritual and the material created in the image of the creative God, or are we really just machines made of matter? And depending on where you come down on that fundamental question, you're going to end up with a different view of the future and of the economy and of technology.
0: Well, one, one of the quotes you pulled out in the book was from The Wall Street Journal. It said, exponential feedback between technology and, te- and intelligence is humanity's accelerator. And then you mm. wrote, to miss this is to miss the key fact of our economy. Grasp this and you have reason for hope.
1: That's exactly right, because we we tend to think of all this technology as replacing what we're doing. Well, yes, it might replace or make obsolete an old way of doing what we're doing. Um, But, you know, to use the Seegers and Fitness Blender again, yeah, maybe there's probably fewer people will need private uh, physical trainers. On the other hand, because they can actually get a lot of the information and training online. On the other hand, millions of people that can never afford private personal trainers now we're able to get it effectively free online that's that's cause of the technology because of the video technology and the internet and online streaming video technology that allows that to happen so rather than thinking of technology as replacing us think of it as a sort of our extension in time and space it's like a, our, 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 our um, entrepreneurial prostheses which extend ourselves and our creativity into different domains so the technology yes it can be a bad thing every technology has a cost as well as a benefit but we need to think of these things as enhancing our capacities to do things in new and different ways if we think of that way i think we're going to be much more likely to find solutions if you just think oh well there's really nothing that i can do and it's all very depressing you're not going to exercise the courage and the types of virtues you actually need to be able to flourish in a new economy
0: sure well, Jay, Jay, we're getting close to the to the end of uh, our program, and uh, we've covered a lot of ground. I mean, you know, from yeah. from, from Genesis to AI. That, I, I think that's a pretty long journey, uh, <laughs> and, and a little virtue mixed in too. But. Uh, you know, it. You you thought so. You thought a lot about this, and probably probably since you wrote the book, you thought, "Gosh, now now I've got this new insight." Uh, is there mm-hmm. is, is there anything else, any anywhere in the range of you know the biblical vision for work to the human advantage and how we live with artificial intelligence? Anything else that you, you might like for our listeners to know from from your own reflection?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess if I was going to boil all this down into a single piece of advice, it would be this: uh, prepare. Don't panic. Yes, there's going to be disruption. Things are changing and they're changing very quickly. They're in some ways, they're changing more quickly than they ever have. Uh, that is both a cost and it's something maybe to be concerned about, but it's also a huge opportunity. If you're a student or you have kids that are maybe in high school and college, get them thinking about continuous education in which they're constantly learning new skills and developing new capacities and cultivating new virtues. And if they do that, um, I'm convinced there are going to be far more opportunities in the future. There will be hundreds of things that we will be able to do in the future. If you think about it, the average American at the time of the American founding, basically they had one option. They could be farmers or work connected to farming, and if they didn't, couldn't do that, they didn't have a lot, of, a lot of opportunities to do other things. All of us, if we just have a kind of middling education and a little bit of motivation and can, can cultivate these virtues, I think in the future – uh, dozens or scores or maybe even hundreds of things that we could do. And it will be a matter of deciding, okay, what's the thing that I could maybe be happy doing and do, do well, and that would allow me to create value for others and allow me to succeed as well. So um, prepare, get ready for massive change, but don't panic that the machines are going to take over.
0: Sure. Yeah. Edu- you know, we haven't really talked about education that much, but uh, the key things there are, are, are what, adaptability, uh, what, What base knowledge should someone try to have, and how do they prepare to be adaptable?
1: That's exactly right. And for college students, I really advise students do everything you can to get a good, solid base in liberal arts education and critical thinking to enrich your soul. That's the purpose of a liberal arts education. And also develop some side technical specialties, whether it's social media or it's accounting or whatever it is. So don't just do one or the other. Don't hyper-specialize, but also don't hyper-generalize. If you can, and you can afford it, Try to get a good liberal arts grounding and then also develop some particular technical skill that will allow you to survive.
0: Jay, I'd love to, I'd love to just keep talking. It's, it's great fun. I've, I've really en- enjoyed our time together, and I appreciate your book. I really want to recommend it to, to our audience. The book is called The Human Advantage, The Future of American Work in an Age of Smart Machines. And uh, as Jay just said, we need to prepare for the future, but don't panic. God is with us. Jesus said, do not fear, and he gave us a lot of capacities to do the things that he's called us to do. So, Jay Richards, thank you so much.
1: My pleasure. Great to be with
0: you, Larry. Bless you. You take care. Thank you to our audience for being with us today. I hope you'll visit our website, hillcountryinstitute.org, to listen to our previous programs and also as podcast at Hill Country Institute Live. We have audio and video from past conferences on faith and culture issues such as work, science, and art and topics of concern such as environmental stewardship and fighting human trafficking. We ask for your financial support for this program so we may pay the radio stations and continue to be on the air. You can donate at our website, hillcountryinstitute.org, and by calling 512-680-7993. That's 512-680-7993 and hillcountryinstitute.org. For donations of $100 or more... We have Jay Richard's book, The Human Advantage, The Future of American Work in an Age of Smart Machines, Our selection of books on faith and culture. Thank you again for being with us for Hill Country Institute Live. We encourage you to share the love and wisdom of Jesus Christ wherever God calls you.